But I went to Guatemala with the team. We got back, um, and the next morning it, it, it snowed here, and so we had uh, we didn't have service. Um, and then last week was kids' program, and so now um, good to be back here today. Uh, as you walked in, you may have experienced uh, the Guatemalan coffee. Uh, the first um, pot on your uh, uh, right would have been uh, the um, brewed uh, for, for you, specifically the Guatemalan coffee that we brought back from the trip. Andres is our coffee farmer as well as our partner in ministry when we go down there. And so we brought coffee back for you to engage and experience the story. And so that's there. Um, with that, April 30th, the end of April, the last Sunday there is going to be Guatemala Sunday. That's when we're inviting the entire team to come back on stage, share their stories, and let you experience uh, firsthand what happened, what, what went on down on our trip. And then afterwards, we're going to have a luncheon in the basement and let you um, be part of a Guatemalan style food. Um, and, and so we're going to have uh, a great time that April 30th. So mark that in your calendar. It's two weeks after Easter. All right, let's, uh, I got a lot today, so I want to jump in this quick. Let's play a word image game, okay? So I'm going to say a word to you, and I want you to imagine something or someone that fits this description, okay? So I'm going to give you a a title or something, and you're going to imagine or envision a person that best fits that description, all right? You ready to go? So close your eyes. So this will be better if you close your eyes. And so that way you're not distracted. Close your eyes and imagine. Think of this. So here we go. First one. Firefighter. Second. Pilot. Professor. CEO. Doctor. Coach. Captain, theologian, president, inventor, and pastor. All right, you can open your eyes again. So, and we'll come back to that in a, in a few minutes. Um, let me ask you another question. Um, anyone familiar with what a blind spot is? Anyone know what a blind spot is? A few of you? Okay, we'll, we'll teach you today. How many of you believe you have a blind spot in your eye by raising your hands? Okay, what if I were to say, did you know that it's scientifically proven fact that every human being has a blind spot in their retina? That's called the scotoma, which is the Greek word for darkness. Now, how many of you believe you have a blind spot in your eye? The same, I would just, a scientifically proven fact that you all have one. How many believe, right? Okay. <laughs> this, we'll, we'll test it. On your table, in front of you, there's a couple on, uh, they're graph paper on your table. Um, there's, there's only a few per table, so you're going to have to share to do this. But go ahead and get one in your hand if you got one there. Don't leave one on the table. Grab one. And here's what we're going to do. All right. You're going to take that graph paper. So what it looks like here. You're going to hold it out in front of you so the circle is on your right. So you're holding out arm's length circle on your right. You're going to take your right hand and cover your right eye. Cover your right eye. You're going to focus that left eye now on that circle. Just on that circle. And then I want you to slowly bring that paper back to your eye. And you want you to tell me when that X disappears. Uh, yeah, the X is on the left, the circle on the right. So pull that back, and when that X disappears, you're focusing on that circle. And then share the paper, someone didn't get a chance to do it. How many of you have the X disappeared? 
If you didn't, you're not telling the truth because the X would have disappeared because you all have a blind spot in the retina of your eye. Here's the deal. What's, 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 what's also amazing in that moment and something you may have noticed is that, is that your brain also filled in the rest of that graph where that X was. The X disappeared, but the graph actually didn't. There was no blank spot there. Your brain filled in the blank spot with reasonable um, uh, sense, uh, uh, with, with things that would make sense, right? And so uh, the continuation of that same grid as this visible um, everywhere else on the paper was there in that, in that little blank spot there. Um, if you didn't, uh, anyone ever experienced a, a blind spot in the road, like driving on the highway and experienced someone else's blind spot or yours? Yes, yes, right. Where, you're, where you say, hey, I didn't see you. You know, you were in my blind spot. And in that moment, your brain was saying, it's clear. You know, they're, they're, why would anyone be there? Well, that's your blind, blind spot there. Let me read to you from this book. Actually, it's called Blind Spot. Um, Mazarin um, Banaji uh, uh, wrote this book, and it's... Uh, I've just picked it up and started digging into it a little bit. But I want to read something from the, the preface here um, to talk a little bit more about blind spots. It says, A much more dramatic blindness than the one you just experienced occurs in a pathological condition called blind sight, which involves damage to the brain's visual cortex. Patients with this damage show the striking behavior of accurately reaching for and grasping an object placed in front of them even while having no conscious, visible experience of that object. If you place a hammer before the patient and ask, do you see something in front of you? The patient will answer, no, I don't. But ask the patient to reach for and grasp the hammer, and the patient who just said it was invisible will do it successfully. This seemingly bizarre phenomenon happens because the condition of blind sight leaves intact subcortinal uh, retina to brain pathways that can guide visual behavior even in the absence of consciously seeing the hammer. And so in his book, it says it focuses on another type of blind spot, one that contains a large set of biases and keeps them hidden. This hidden bias blind spot shares a feature with the blind spot that you just experienced via the image of the grid and disk. We can be unaware of hidden biases in the same way we are unaware of the retinal scotoma in each of our eyes. This blind spot also shares a feature with the dramatic and pathological phenomenon of a blind sight. Just as patients who can't see a hammer can still act as if they do, hidden biases are capable of guiding our behavior without our being aware of their role. So there are this, if he says lack of a better term, bits of knowledge about social groups. These bits of knowledge are stored in our brains because we encounter them so frequently in our cultural environments. Once lodged in our minds, hidden biases can influence our behavior toward members of uh, particular social groups. But we remain oblivious to their influence. In talking with others about hidden biases, we have discovered that most people find it unbelievable that their behavior can be guided by mental content of which they are unaware. So these are hidden Blind spots, hidden bias, blind spots. How many of you um, think that you have hidden bias, blind spots? Okay, all right. If some of you, uh, if you discovered you had one, would you want to do something about it? I'm guessing you would. So if you remember the word image game we just played, I gave you a list of 10 positions of power, 10 positions of authority in our culture. Without raising your hand, how many of you for those images were men? 
out, how many out of 10 of those images to you were men? Right? I bet if we were honest, we would have imagined that all 10 of those to be men. If I were completely honest when I did this, I saw men in all those positions. Well, why is that? It's not just American culture, but it's, it's all over the world. Chimamanda Adachi, she wrote this in her latest book, and she tells a story about when she was in school at the age of nine. And the teacher said to the class, well, we need to, we need to select a class monitor. And this is what she says in this, in this book. She says that when I was in primary school in a university town in southeastern Nigeria, my teacher said at the beginning of term that she would give the class a test and whoever got the highest score would be the class monitor. The class monitor was a big deal. If you were the class monitor, you would write down the names of noisemakers each day, which was heady enough power on its own. But my teacher would also give you a cane to hold in your hand while you walked around and patrolled the class for noisemakers. Of course, you were not allowed to actually use the cane, but it was an exciting prospect for the nine-year-old me. I very much wanted to be class monitor, and I got the highest score on the test. Then, to my surprise, my teacher said the monitor had to be a boy. She had forgotten to make that clear earlier. She assumed it was obvious. A boy had the second highest score on the test, and he would be monitor. What was even more interesting is that this boy was a sweet, gentle soul who had no interesting, uh, interest in patrolling the class with a stick, while I was full of ambition to do so. But I was female, and he was male, and he became the class monitor. If we have never forgotten, I, I have never forgotten that incident. If we do something over and over again, it becomes normal. If we see the same thing over and over again, it becomes normal. If only boys are made class monitors, then at some point we will all think even if unconsciously, that the class monitor has to be a boy. If we keep seeing only men as heads of corporations, it starts to seem natural that only men should be heads of corporations. If I were or we were to do the same thing and use our imagination, and I said, I want you to imagine God. What does God look like? I think if we were all honest, we would say that God looks like a giant human man, right? We would most likely envision God in our own image, just a giant, right? And, and, and that's because that's what's most familiar to us. I, I wonder, you know, if, if animals do the same thing, if chickens could think, do they, would they think that God was a giant chicken or dogs might view God as a giant dog, right? Our, our brains fill in the gaps where there are blind spots. We don't know what God looks like. And so we imagine God as a giant human because that's familiar to us. But why is that? Why do we see God as male? Or when we think of positions of power and authority in our culture, we think men. Mike Hargue, uh, also known as Science Mike, he talks about this idea of a neurological effect where you and I, we have these categories in our minds and when uh, you and I uh, have these boxes that are conditioned by our culture to believe certain things, and so we automatically believe those things. And as we get older and we surround ourselves with people who think and believe just like we have always thought and believed, those boxes grow tighter and tighter. This is why many of us, we can't have healthy conversations about religion or politics or gender with people we disagree with or have a different view of the world. You see, we have shoved our faith and practices into this box 
that have been conditioned by our surroundings. And so when new information comes in, we don't have room in our boxes. And so the new info just bounces right off the sealed box. And you can't receive new information when you don't have the neurological categories for new thoughts or ideas. And so to undo this is a very difficult and sometimes painful process, which leads to arguments with your family at Thanksgiving, right? Or for you and I to hide behind our keyboard and say things that we would never say face to face. And this is how these hidden biases, blind spots are created. We refuse to open boxes or create space in our minds for a new way of thinking or being. And this is why the religious people in the first century wanted to kill Jesus. You see, he showed up and he challenged the hidden biases of the day. He showed up with some revolutionary ways of thinking and being. And he showed up with this sermon on the mountain. He said, hey, the way we treat and view over half of the human population is wrong. That 52% of the U.S. population right now are women. And he says, now, men, you will be responsible for your actions. And Jesus showed up and he said, listen, guys, you have a spiritual responsibility to control yourself. That the fruit of my spirit that that is inside of you is is self-control and you must use it. And Jesus there ends the practice of forcing women to be covered to be veiled, to be mute, to be cloistered. Because when women are treated this way, it's not voluntary modesty in action. Instead, it speaks of a culture of weak men who find it easy to control women than to control themselves. So here's what I want to do the rest of today and over the next few weeks. We're going to look at the historical treatment of women versus the radically progressive treatment of women that Jesus himself taught and practiced. But first, we got to lay some groundwork. we got to start with some definitions, right? So here we go. First word, sex, is your biological makeup. In other words, your parts, right? Male and female distinctions. Sexism is a prejudice, a stereotype, dehumanizing of someone strictly based on their biology. Gender is a reference to the socio-philosophical existence that we have, what we acquire through cultural experience. This is our learned behavior, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. It's sociologically conditioned. It's not inherent. Genderism is when we say, nope, you can't do that because you're a girl or because you're a boy. Because this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. And both sexism and genderism are extremely dehumanizing. I also want to look at feminism. We're going to look at encounters Jesus had with women that would lead me to believe that Jesus is a feminist. And now I I think, though, it is fair to say that the word feminist did not exist in the days of Jesus. But it's also safe to assume that Jesus wasn't a stranger to revolutionary thought. And so I'm going to assume that uh, all of us, or, or most of us, grew up with a very negative image of what it meant to be a feminist. And let me read this to you again. This is out of um, Chimamanda's Adachi's book. She says, But what it shows is how the word feminist is so heavy with baggage. 
negative baggage. You hate men. You hate bras. You hate African culture. You think women should always be in charge. You don't wear makeup. You don't shave. You're always angry. You don't have a sense of humor and you don't use deodorant. Something maybe similar to that. You grew up understanding what a feminist was. Here's the online definition of a feminist in the noun version. Advocating for social, political, legal, and economic rights for women equal to those of men. The adjective of uh, of a feminist would be the advocate of such rights. Or what I like better, in 1986, Marie Scheer famously wrote in her review of the Feminist Dictionary that feminism is the radical notion that women are people. The radical notion that women are people. So was Jesus a feminist? According to what it actually means to be a feminist. For me, without a doubt. Jesus clearly respected women, talked to women, ate with women, had women a part of his following. In the ways in which Jesus encountered women, uh, in ways that weren't happening in that day. Things that the law had forbidden. But I think, that after a closer reading to some of the stories that you'll hear over the next few weeks, it will show you that Jesus was, in fact, a feminist and suggest to all of you that perhaps maybe we all should be feminists too. Join me in prayer, God. For the next few moments, I ask you to open our hearts where our hands are gripped tight and we're holding on fiercely. Soften us. Make room for your spirit to speak afresh to us, to move in this place. And then we pray. Amen. Turn with me your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Many of you are familiar with this story. The story was uh, actually uh, um, almost kept out of the, the Bible, the first three manuscripts of John, um, doesn't have this story in it. And you can see that if you have a study Bible, it, it indicates that. But the fourth manuscript had it, and in other places it had it in different areas of the Gospels. And so um, the story was almost left out to much speculation of why. Um, but let me read this for you, starting in verse 2 of chapter 8. It said, At dawn he appeared, this is Jesus, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger, And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman standing there as well, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. A couple things that jump out immediately when you read that story, at least for me, is one is, where's the dude at? 
right? Has anyone ever asked that question? Like, you know, like this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Well, where's the other person, right? Why has he not been drug out into the middle of town square as well? Well, perhaps maybe this is just another reflection of the horrible double standard attached to women's sexuality, where men are praised for their sexual conquests and women are shamed for any impropriety, right? You know, I want to read from this book. She tells another story that's, uh, well, defines our culture really well. Recently, a young woman was gang raped in a university, and the response of many students, both male and female, was something like this. Yes, rape is wrong. But what is a girl doing in a room with four boys anyways? Let us, if we can, forget the horrible inhumanity of that response. But these people have been raised to think of a woman as inherently guilty. And they have been raised to expect so little of men that the idea of men as savage beings with no self-control is somehow acceptable. Boys will be boys. We teach girls shame. Close your legs. Cover yourself. We make them feel as though by being born female, they are already guilty of something. And so girls grow up to be women who cannot say they have desire, who silence themselves, who cannot say what they truly think, and who have turned pretense into an art form. So in verse 5 of that chapter of John 8, the Mosaic law would require the death penalty for both. They are citing from Deuteronomy chapter 22. So if you, again, have your Bible, turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. I want to point something out here. They're citing verse, verse 22. And so c- citing this exact law here would show that this girl was a virgin. And, and, and that means I'm wondering how, for some of us, already a different image than the one most of us had about this adulterous woman, knowing she was a virgin. Verse 22. Well, it's verse 23. says, If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in town and did not scream for help, or the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. So she was guilty of what she did. He was not, what his act was against the other man. It wasn't against her, it was against the other man. But something I want to point out, uh, it's kind of a side note here. For those of you, for those of us that love to uh, use scripture to have debate and arguments with people who, who don't believe the validity of Scripture, which is over half of our population doesn't recognize the Bible as truth or fact. When you use the Scripture to defend God's plan for marriage, you have to reconcile with verses like this. If you jump down, Deuteronomy 22. Drop down to verse 28. says this, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the girl for he has violated her and he can never divorce her as long as he lives. You'll have to reconcile why 
if a man rapes a woman, that she has to marry her rapist, according to Moses' law. It's in the scripture. We can't cherry pick scripture unless we just like Leviticus, right? So we got to look at it all. So where was the guy? Also, where were the witnesses in this story? This is obviously not a formal court uh, session because there weren't the witnesses there. The, the man wasn't there. Was this woman set up? Was she used as a pawn uh, in the games that the Pharisees were playing to catch Jesus? See, women were viewed as simple sex objects. Leonard Swidler, in his thesis, Jesus was a feminist, wrote this. When the scribes and the Pharisees used a woman reduced entirely to a sex object to set a legal trap for Jesus, it is difficult to imagine a more callous use of a human person than the adulterous woman who was put to by the enemies of Jesus. First, she was surprised in the intimate act of sexual intercourse, quite possibly a trap that was set up ahead of time by a suspicious husband, and then dragged before the scribes and Pharisees, and then by them before an even larger crowd that Jesus was instructing, making her stand in full view of everybody. They told Jesus that she had been caught in the very act of committing adultery and that Moses had commanded that such woman be stoned to death. What have you to say? The trap was partly that if Jesus said yes to stoning, he would be violating the Roman law, which restricted capital punishment. If he said no, he would appear to contravene Mosaic law. And it could also partly have been to place Jesus' reputation for kindness toward and championing the cause of women and in their, uh, I'm sorry, women in the opposition to the law and the condemnation of sin. Jesus, of course, alluded that there's, there's snares by refusing to become entangled in legalism and abstractions. Rather, he dealt with both the accuser and the accused directly as spiritual, ethical human beings. He spoke directly to the accusers in the context of their own personal, ethical conduct. If there is any one of you who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. To the accused woman, he likewise spoke directly with compassion. But without approving her conduct, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. The second thing that kind of jumps out at me is, is Jesus' response, right? Like he treated her and the religious leaders as equal. He leveled the playing field in that moment. The story says that he knelt down and he began to write in the sand and no one knows what he wrote down. There's many that have speculated, but either way, in that moment, Jesus disengages the mob that had gathered around. It's a shame so many stories from the Bible have become so familiar, so analyzed that we have lost both their meaning and power. The Bible almost never, perhaps ever tells us how to interpret and apply the multitude of puzzling, cryptic and sometimes absurdist portrayals of human weakness, duplicity, hypocrisy, and outright stupidity. The story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 is certainly one of the most blatantly preposterous stories cleverly or not so cleverly disguised as common morality tale. Morf Morford in his blog wrote about this story and he says, as a child... A generation ago, a common term for a young woman who, in the eyes of the community at least, found herself with child, was accused of getting herself pregnant. As a child, when I heard that, 
obviously uh, and usually hushed statement. I puzzled over how such an act of obvious carelessness could have occurred on, for her. Never, at least in my hearing, was male culpability implied or legally pursued or even mentioned. The same mentality seems at work in these men so eager to judge and condemn and kill with their own hands this young woman. They obviously don't want justice. If they did, there would be two parties under judgment and they would stand before a court, not an indigent, bloodthirsty mob. But not only is this Bible story so familiar that we can barely see it, the scene itself is like a scene from today's typical news story. How many times have we seen a group of men clothed in authority and righteous indignation publicly shame, ridicule, and condemn a solitary woman, usually from some act she has no choice in, like playing the woman card, or a minimum she shared responsibility for, like pregnancy or the termination of a pregnancy? Mob have their own rules. Mobs dredge up the lowest and most raw common denominator of fear, rage, and violence. Members of a mob do things they would never do as individuals. Mobs don't commit adultery. But even those, perhaps especially those individually guilty of adultery in thought or in deed, according to Matthew 5, are eager to judge the sin of others from the safe anonymity of a crowd. They might even in a sacrificial sense, find some cleansing of their own sin by shedding the blood of someone else's guilty of their own sin. It takes some humility to recognize that each one of us is susceptible to the thought, if not the act, of any given sin. Mobs have no such humility. It takes someone, one person, to remind a mob that they too are individuals and that this woman before them is far from alone in her sin. The mob is not interested in the identity or guilt or even the existence of the man involved in the adultery. Was he one of them? Was he a man they already knew? It didn't didn't even matter. All that matters is that she committed adultery. This is the scene that Jesus seems to wander into. We all know, we think we know what happens next. They appear to ask Jesus, well, what should you do? Teacher, this woman was caught And the act of adultery in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And we miss the point even further in the direct statement from Scripture that if we imagine that they're asking for his authoritative legal opinion, we are mistaken if we imagine that they would believe or accept his legal opinion. We forget or deliberately choose not to acknowledge the fact that the case after case that asked Jesus for his opinion, not for legal insight, but so they can accuse and condemn him as well. Jesus would not condemn the law or even their distorted biases, interpretation of it. But he does require a shred of reflection in humanity from those who would so eagerly judge. He allows for the law, but requires even more, and then then they do, only a religious one is worthy to cast the first stone. Apparently, those who are not righteous are still qualified to throw stones, just not the first one. And then Jesus stoops down and writes in the dust. The gospel writers doesn't tell us what he wrote. Perhaps it was the names of the guilty ones, the same sin. Perhaps it was a verse from the Torah. Either way, it was either obvious enough or too unimportant for the gospel writer to record. And like the gospel writer too, I think it wasn't important. But I believe Jesus stayed there in silence, witnessing this murderous hypocrisy and the guilt and the shame of the young woman 
and the slowly dissipating rage of the crowd until every man, so eager to judge just for a few moments, left without saying a word. Jesus looks up and seems almost surprised to see no accusers left. With no one left to judge, Jesus closes the scene almost casually. And he reduces this all-too-familiar, universal, and near-surreal story to a simplistic morality tale in its own kind of sin. And how many times have we seen in every religion the same religious-tinged gracelessness? How many times have we seen or even become the one who, in God's name, is not only eagerly to see blood, but also to have it on our own hands? The feverish impulse is contagious and seems unstoppable. And perhaps it is, at least until the lone voice calls us to our deeper, truer selves. And we, too, sink away in silence. All right. I'm going to close with this. Because I know some of you are thinking, hey, man, this is old news. Things aren't like that anymore. Why Why are we even talking about this today, right? As a culture, we're already there. We've made great strides. Equality is here. Well, that depends on where you're looking or who you're looking at or where you're sitting. Still in most mainline churches, we continue to use completely non-inclusive language. We have male language for everything in our songs, in our writings, in our leadership. It's our narrative. But there is a deeper reason that we don't talk about things like this in church. And it's because it brings up some really hard stuff. It reveals some inner issues that many of us still have, some hidden biases that we didn't even know we had. You see, we refuse to talk about it because it sheds light on horrible crimes that are committed on women every day. And when we refuse to talk about gender, we refuse to talk about violence on women. We refuse to talk about that every 98 seconds, a woman is sexually assaulted in the United States. That somewhere between 20 and 30 million women have been victims of attempted rape or completed rape. That's not sexual assault. That's just the rape numbers. Females between the ages of 16 and 19, four times more likely to be victims of rape or sexual assault than the entire population. Women 18 to 24, the college days women, three times more likely. And then 13% of those women have attempted suicide. That 70% of them experience severe distress more than any other violent crime committed. You see, the reality of sexism, where we teach that man equals strength and female equals weakness, just reinforces the sexual violence that is committed every 98 seconds. How did we get here? Where did we learn to treat women this way? Well, it's the same way we enslaved an entire race of people. When you don't see another person as fully human, created in the image of God, you will not see, treat, speak to, or pay them as a full person. It's the propaganda and the lies that lead us to believe that, yeah, she deserved to be groped. That if you want to, you can just rock right up to her and grab her by the genitals. After all, that's what they were asking for when she was wearing that, right? You want some truth? That is not how humans should ever talk about other humans, ever. 
We do believe that, right? The radical notion that women are people. The whole story has to change. If it happens to women, it happens to all of us. So why is this an issue for a spiritual community? Besides the fact that it affects literally every single person in this room, male and female alike. I will talk about this because we have a congregation of strong, creative, powerful, beautifully made, fearfully, wonderfully made women in this church. And we can't pretend they're not there. Or can only lead in certain areas because of their parts or our bad theology. I'll talk about this because I have three beautiful daughters and I refuse to let them grow up in any church or culture that says, because of the way God made you, you're less than, you're inferior, you're unable to lead. See, the church has a huge responsibility. If we truly believe that the image of God manifests in all people, then the image of God includes what it means to be male and female. God incarnate, God in flesh, God seen in flesh and blood is only incarnate when God is seen also in female bodies. That his fullness is only seen when it is seen as equal male and female. And we must find the beauty of both masculine and feminine because the image of God includes all that it means to be female, to be male, to be masculine, to be feminine, And just knowing blind spots exist is not enough. We must acknowledge. We must work at fixing it. Close with two last statements from this book. She says, my own definition of feminist is a man or a woman who says, yes, there is a problem with gender as it is today. And we must fix it. We must do better. All of us. Women and men must do better because culture does not make people. People make culture. If it is true that the full humanity of women is not our culture, then we can and must make it our culture. Watch this video. Understand it when the times are changing, people get scared of things rearranging. But even history shifts when told by more voices, and not just one kind of person has all the choices. So here we are, there's no turning back. The cost that was paid for all that we have. A new era dawns as another one dies out. But today, the woman still cries out. When God imagined me, the Trinity was in harmony. I was no afterthought, no oversight, no spare rail, and no red light. When God imagined me, the gathering infinity. 
were still gathering And all was right It was good And I was light When God imagined me This long last breath of a dying system Where men of God still call this tyranny Christian When the one who they claim to be their Lord and Savior Is in every single one of the women they blame For tempting violent desire for the millions of slights that occur every hour it's time for new birth for a simple embrace of everyone's worth when God imagined me the Trinity was in harmony no afterthought, no oversight, no spirit, and no red light. When God imagined me, the gathering infinity was still gathering, and all was right. It was good, and I was light. God imagine me.